So good evening. Yeah. Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to the second part of uh, Dr. Sarah Zager's class for Drisha's spring series, um, the very cleverly uh, named set table. Um, and yeah, we'll be taking a look at um, at uh, household labor in uh, Jewish sources, you know, spanning the whole gamut. So uh, yeah. Thank you. Take it away. Thank you so much, Maxine, for the lovely introduction. Um, I would love for everyone who's here, if you're willing to turn on your camera, um, because it's a great feeling to feel like you're teaching to human beings, who I know you all are. Um, but obviously, I recognize that household labor, among other things, interfere with what you might be doing uh, at on your Sunday evening, um, but I would love to see your faces if possible. So I noticed we have some faces who weren't here with us last week, and that's totally great, but just to sort of situate where we're going um, with where we were last week. Last week, we explored some of the potential tensions between household labor and Torah learning, and the ways that traditional sources often assume that those two things are kind of deeply in conflict, and maybe some ways that we might reimagine that conflict. So I said last week that that was sort of, I was like setting up the Hava Amina, the like initial thing you might think that eventually might be, might complicate or think is wrong and that the Maskana would come uh, this week. So hopefully I will make good on that promise and give you the kind of one revised way of thinking about the relationship between household labor and maybe not so much Torah learning as much as like leadership roles in halachic communities or something like that. Um, and the goal of this year is really going to be to focus on childcare. Um, broadly conceived, we're going to talk a little bit about what which what forms of childcare uh, these sources are really interested in talking about. So, without further ado, I think I will I will share my screen and make sure everything is working appropriately here. Which the answer is it is not. Okay, here we go. Um, one moment. Oh, Maxine, can you make it so I can share a screen, please? Yes, also the source sheet is available uh, in PDF form in the chat. Wonderful. Okay, hold on. Give me a thumbs up if you can see that and actually read it. Oh, wonderful. Okay, great. Wonderful. So last week, we saw a little bit of the kind of idea that there is a potential conflict between the intellectual work of Talmud Torah and household labor um, and childcare in particular. I just wanted you to see as a sort of starting point that that's also true in the kind of broader intellectual world beyond Jewish thought that forms, you know, the sort of political culture in which we operate. Um, so can I get someone just to read this line from Peter Abelard? Um, Abelard is a medieval figure, autobiographer, kind of historian, but his main work is really a story of his life. And he falls in love with this woman, Eloise, and he wants to marry her. And this paragraph describes her reply to him. Um, can I get somebody to read? Go ahead, Kelsey. Okay. Then turning from the consideration of such hindrances to the study of philosophy, Eloise bade me observe what were the conditions of honorable wedlock. What possible concord could there be between scholars and domestics, between authors and cradles, between books or tablets and distaffs, between the stylus or the pen and the spindle? What man intent on his religious or philosophical meditations can possibly endure the whining of children, the lullabies of the nurse seeking to quiet them or the noisy confusion of family life? Who can endure the continual untidiness of children? Great, so right, Eloise says to him, look, if you wanna, you, if you wanna keep doing this philosophy thing, you better not marry me because there's, there's kind of no hope for you to think once, once there's, uh, children, you know, whining and all the rest of it. So there's an idea of that there's something incompatible with between a sort of intellectual life on the one hand 
and the work of childcare, which is basically an idea we saw also articulated in rabbinic sources last week. However, just it's to sort of understand how the history of that idea gets pulled through um, kind of Western philosophy. It morphs from that idea, that intellectual idea, um, grows up, morphs into, grows up alongside another idea, which is that in order to be a political leader of your community, you can't be too involved in the, you know, and what the whining of children, the lullabies of the nurse, the noisy confusion of family life. There's something about being about participating in that that actually hinders your ability to assume a leadership role. That's um, and there are a lot of reasons why that idea pops up, but one is the the sense that if you're going to take on some public political role, in doing so, you need to distance yourself from your very particular connections to your family, because you might actually have loyalties to your family that would get in the way of your political job. And that there's a kind of intellectual piece often to, to leadership positions, right? So we're going to see over the course of the next hour, hopefully, um, some good rabbinic texts that will challenge this set of assumptions and suggest that actually there's a lot to do um, with in the intellectual and, and social political work of leadership can actually be bolstered by um, the noisy confusion of family life. That's sort of the, the, the arc of where we're gonna go. So I, I just gave you this really like pithy quote by Hobbes that feminist philosophers love to hate, um, where he says, you know, let's imagine the best way to imagine what a, a, a human citizen is, is to imagine them like a mushroom with no roots. They just spring up out of nowhere. So that obviously erases the people who do all the caregiving labor that makes it possible for these, you know, fully formed uh, men, almost always, uh, to, to enter the political sphere. Okay, so without further ado, um, we're going to look at two main halakhic roles today. The first is the role of the shots of the, the leader of prayers on a fast day. And the Mishnah and Tanit imposes specific requirements on the um, shots on a fast day, including that he has children. So we're going to spend some time thinking about that requirement and why you might require such a thing uh, to be in a, in a leadership position. So um, I'll read this Mishnah and then we'll, we'll get some other readers as we go. So I'm Dubat Fila, Moridin Lifnehateba, Zakain Viragil. Right? So they are, when they stand and pray on a fast day, and it's worth noting that this is a fast day that's called for a communal purpose rather than like, you know, Tanit Esther or something. Um, it's a fast day called usually because there's like an agricultural crisis, a drought, something of that sort. Um, the person who they have lead is someone who is old. Ragil, we'll talk a little bit about what Ragil means. And um, that will be a question the Gemara is gonna ask. Um, who has children, whose house is empty. We're gonna spend some time thinking about like, what's the relationship between those two things? So that he will have a full heart and prayer. So does anyone want to just like puzzle out what's the logic between saying on the one hand, he's going to have a full heart in prayer if he is, has, what, what's the relationship between these traits and having a full heart in prayer? Anyone, any ideas? You can put them in the chat or you can say them out loud. Yeah, Desmond. You know, I would say there are so many things that can go wrong with a house full of children and especially before antibiotics and just all the dangers of the field, you know, the things that could happen that, you know, somebody who has children and is involved with them, their heart is full. And, you know, so many times in the day, their heart is in their mouth of, you know, gratitude for dangers narrowly averted or joy at, you know, the child has shown some deep understanding. So, yeah, I mean, that's my prejudice as a parent, right? I don't know what somebody who's never had children would say. Right, good. So I think that there's some sense of precarity that often comes with 
having children, or at least that this Mishnah imagines comes with having children. Um, and that that sense of precarity is really appropriate to the role of having to pray for the community in a time of like great need, right? The reason they're doing this is because they don't know they're gonna have enough food. And that's a, a feeling and a sense of precarity that maybe someone might be in a good position to, to uh, articulate. Cool, anyone else? I saw John had a note in a chat that like, if someone who's used to, used to have to care for a lot of people in their life, then they might have some emotional capacity to hand to sort of hand over um, and devote to this task. I feel like you could also go the totally opposite direction and say, actually, maybe the fact that he's caught up with dealing with his family means that he doesn't have any emotional capacity to deal with um, the community. Can I argue with that? Yeah, please. So I feel like the difference, oh, somebody else should go first. Kelsey, why don't you go ahead and then, then we'll hear from Desmond again. Well, I didn't have a direct response to that. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, I have children, but I feel like there's, I think it's a sort of pretty contemporary um, conversation to have about like, is, does parenting make you capable of more? Like, I think the, the, the um, people who are childless by, cho or child-free by choice, I think find that a little offensive that they, you know, yeah. that they would be like, yeah. But obviously that's not really, that's a very contemporary issue. It's not really something that's coming up at this time. But similar to what Desmond was saying, I think like not only the that you're worried about your kids or whatever, but like one's ability to be, maybe it's just me and my like broken brain, but um, like one's ability to become absorbed in other activities and to like really focus your attention on something as you know, ideally one's doing when leading prayer is so limited when you have children particularly if they're small and you're sort of always only thinking two or three minutes ahead of what it is that you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that the older they get and the less liable they are to like, I don't know, jump off of something that's high or whatever, then I think that that sort of starts to wane. So you can become, you know, or at least I would imagine that your ability to become absorbed in things returns. Right, right. And there's something about the, the particular, um, we'll see at the end, there's been a lot of uh, kind of feminist thought and feminist Jewish thought about the particular stage of young children and caring for the way that young caring for young children kind of affects your mind. Um, and that might be different than like dealing with a teenager. So there's one interesting little read of this Mishnah that I want to want you to see related to that, right? Yesh lo vanim uveto rekam. Now there's a lot of ways to read uveto rekam. So the straightforward way, which I think is probably shot and like kind of the, the, the simplest reading is just, he doesn't have, like he goes home and there's nothing in the storehouse. Like there's nothing, when he says his house is empty, it means empty of food, of resources, right? However, I think you can also read this as saying, somebody, somebody suggested this to me, maybe even in a, you're teaching this text in a different setting at Drisha, but somebody suggested to me, and I think it's actually a really good point that, Maybe what's going on here is he has children, but they've left the house. So he's not in this stage of like the young child um, who's going to take away his attention like in that moment while he's being the shots. It's actually that he's got some stake in the agricultural, economic, social future of this community that extends beyond his own lifetime in a really clear way, but it's not like, and that has a sort of psychological weight, but it's not immediately, there's gonna be a four-year-old who like is demanding something right now, right? Maybe that's what this mission is describing. And maybe that's one way to square the kind of, also he's described here as old. Maybe that's also one way of, of kind of squaring the, squaring the circle. Desmond, did you have an idea? Yeah, I wanted to argue that Yes, you could say sleep deprivation and constant interruption and your ears ringing from kids crying could make it hard to focus on bring up being a prayer leader or studying. But I also feel that the thing that happens when you're involved in child rearing, where you have to be there 
when the need arises, the need arises, and it has nothing to do with your 104 degree fever or your migraine headache or your deadline at work or anything else. And you develop this ability to meet the need regardless of what else is going on. And I feel like that is excellent training for being a leader. You know, the ability to step up when it's needed and the ability to plan out a course of action when there is need, no matter how many other things are going on. So I think the best of all worlds maybe is what you said about, okay, this is later on after his kids are grown. So he was involved in the child rearing. He developed all these skills, but now he can really focus on using them as a leader. I don't know. Yeah, great. Maxine? Yeah, I was about to say, I just, what I'm hearing is uh, people, um, it, like it sounds like people are thinking about, you know, the, um, the kind of empathetic uh, capacity of the uh, shots, but I think that, I don't know, there is something about um, having, like, you know, I would think that having children, um, especially older children who, you know, have relationships with all sorts of different people in the community and like their well-being, um, you know, is at somewhat dependent on uh, those relationships and you know of course also the like you know grandchildren or great-grandchildren and um, you know all these people it just it kind of it's not just an ability to kind of empathize with the other people in their community but it's actually being like more bound up in the community and there's yeah. also something about like this uh, kind of projection over to the next generations that I was uh I was thinking about in terms of um, what I hear from people who are concerned with uh, climate change. Now, one of the right, one of the big things that I hear from people with children is that, like, you know, I want things to be better than you know they're projected to be when, like, my child or my grandchildren are my age. Right, like, right, twenty eighty sounds like a long time away right now, but if you start to think about like, okay, what, you know, how old will the four-year-old be? And like, what is, right? Yeah, I think I think that's definitely part of it. And there's a sort of investment in the community. Okay, cool. So we're now, yeah, good. Kelsey raises the question of, are the men actually trained to do these kinds of things, right? Because this Mishnah assumes that the person leading prayers is a man. We're gonna get to that. Um, in, in some detail in a minute. Um, and and the, the short answer is it's a little unclear what's what's going on, but um, you'll see some different op interpretive options that, that are open to you for thinking about what, what might this text might be imagining. Okay, so we're now gonna see the, the Gemara on this Mishnah. And I want you to see a couple of things, right? You can see that the, the tendency of the Mishnah in, and I, I promise I didn't, in the ellipsis, didn't edit out anything super significant, is the list of, um, it, you know, we're going to think about what the word ragil is, but you don't get from this list in the Mishnah that he needs to be a like tremendous Talmud right? You don't get that he needs to have like all kinds of technical, intellectual expertise. You get, he has to have a certain kind of life experience and be able, right, and be sort of used to doing this. Um, you'll see some voices in the Gemara like kind of pulling back the other way, which shouldn't surprise us, right? The later rabbinic strata of, of writing tend to be more invested in what we academics call scholasticism, but just sort of creating a, a technical discourse that they're all a part of. Great. So here is the, the Gemara's commentary on this mission. Right, that's a quotation from our Mishnah. Right, so I said to you before, we're going to leave uh, ragil as a background word. We're not going to kind of translate it, but here you're going to see that ragil is actually where you might have thought that ragil is a word that implies some kind of technical expertise. Ragil is actually kind of placed in the background as being or placed in opposition to hacham vizake. So actually it might not be sort of technical at all. It might be something else. So now, um, now 
when you see curvy brackets in the Gemara, anyone know what that implies to you? Nobody? Pop quiz? Okay. Curvy brackets. Or so that, that it was an earlier edition? So it means that the editors of the Vilna Shas thought that this probably wasn't there, that this probably is an interpolation by some later editor and is not actually like an integral part of the text. So usually when you're learning, if you see those round brackets, you should be suspicious of what's in them. If you see square brackets, that's something that the editor of the Vilna Shas didn't find in some editions, but believes should be there. Editors, plural of the Vilna Shas. So you should just, good thing to file in the back of your memory. So now, even though it's a kind of quote unquote, you know, it's an interpolation that we should be suspicious of, it can be useful to see why would a scribe put them there, right? Why would a scribe put this phrase there? So Ezehu Ragil is a question that's easily raised by this initial brighta, right? The one I'm highlighting here um, or highlighted here in English. So who is a person who is quote unquote fluent? And the answer you'll see doesn't really fit the question. And that's why the editors of Vilna Shas are like a little suspicious, right? So Rabbi Yehuda Omer, mitupal ve'en lo, ve'yesh lo yegia basada uveto reka. So who is a person who is regil? Maybe, maybe that question isn't really there. Rabbi Yehuda says he, um, he cares for children, but he doesn't have enough his house is empty and he has to go out into the field and his house is empty. So here again, I think, you know, are we gonna read Uve Tore Kam as he's an empty nester? Maybe yes, maybe no. But the idea it seems like from this, just this little line of Rabbi Yehuda is that he is responsible for caring for these children and he doesn't have enough to feed them. And that that's something that makes you particularly well-suited to being the shots on a fast day. For all the reasons that we, we just mentioned, right? There's something, um, there's a sense of precarity that that person feels that might be different than someone who isn't responsible for feeding a bunch of people when there's a, a drought. Yeah, Desmond. So maybe Ragil is referring to custom as it is, as in it is his custom to take care of children it is his custom that he has to go out and work in the field. He doesn't have enough. So that maybe that the person who is representing the community should be somebody who understands what the community has to do. Yeah, right. I think that's right. And understands the implications of being in a drought in a serious way. Now, I think one thing that's worth sort of spelling out and, and making it feel so surprising is if I said, right, it, I mean, and even just like go look in your machser for the translation of ragil as it appears in Hinani, which is taken from here. Um, ragil is meant as like fluent of speech, able to say the words. And that's not what's being suggested here. Now, this little, the way I divided these boxes up is perhaps a little, uh, little quick because in fact, this is sort of a continuation of Rabbi Huda's statement probably. So. He is eventually going to say something about that, but okay. So now Rabbi Huda is going to list a bunch of other traits besides these other ones. And they're in some ways kind of a, a contrast, let's say, to, to the traits we had before, right? Ufir Kona'e, he is like essentially youthful and good looking. Shafel Uvarich, he's humble. He's like pleasing to the people around. Um, and he, right, he knows he, he has a pleasant voice and he's used to reading what used to reading right whoa now he has to know all of tenef Th that escalated rapidly right first we said there was basically no mention of technical expertise in the mishnah and now we've gotten to he needs to know all of tenef wow that's a lot um okay and he also needs to know no midrash halachot agadot now he know, needs to know all of the blessings. But all of a sudden we sort of, I, I almost think that, that you're supposed to find this a little funny or you're supposed to find it like a little amusing that he just sort of tacks on this whole list of a kind of crazy list of things that you're supposed to know, to know. The other thing that's going on here is that at least in the world of Rabbi Yehuda, he doesn't have to be old. In fact, he has to be young. 
And there's a kind of tension, I think, throughout the sources we're going to see today between assuming that someone who is well-suited to these kinds of leadership is, roles is young versus someone is old. And, and what are the different experiences that, that come with that? So, yeah, Desmond. It doesn't mean he was becoming in his youth past tense good good so we're gonna see one reading that suggests that i think um i think i put that here but um it may be that he yeah that he was becoming in his youth um that is not again not how the tradition has tended to read it certainly in like the use of this list as it appears in other sources tends to not read it that way but i think that's a very plausible reading and you'll see that um, I think I brought, I think Rashi reads it that way. Like there, there are lots of good, you're in good company reading it. But there is, I, I, nonetheless, I still think it's a, it's a, it's not explicitly made obvious here that that's what is going on. And I also think that because Rabbi Yehuda, in, in the statement of Rabbi Yehuda itself, it seems like he really is, he has to go out in the field to get food because there isn't enough to feed his children. Not that like the children are off having their own lives and he's no longer responsible for them. We're gonna spend in a few minutes, we're gonna spend some time on the word mitupal and like what actually even is that? What is it that he's doing with the children? Okay, so I wanna see just a, just a little bit. Hainu mitupal ve'enlo. So now we're gonna ask like, what, what actually is this? Hainu um, what, what rekam. What does veto rekam mean? And what does it mean to have an empty house? So Rav Chista says that it's someone whose house is empty from what? From sin. So here, I think you start to see some of what I sort of hinted out earlier that there's a, a shift towards um, not, not thinking about this as primarily an economic description at all, but thinking of it as a kind of spiritual, intellectual, religious description. And the same thing for Ufir This is someone who about whom nothing bad was said in his childhood or in his you know youth. Um, so that that I think is kind of goes along with Desmond's reading of saying that it's about having a good past as opposed to being yourself young and good looking. So that, that you start to see these later voices kind of pulling, pulling the text away toward like the qualification for being the shots on a fast day is actually a religious qualification and not an economic qualification or a social qualification. And it's about having a certain kind of religious excellence, which might, I think in some ways sound more familiar to us in terms of how we think about who would be, who makes a good religious leader. Great. So I want you to see, um, hmm, do we have time to do these inside? Yeah, we'll do them. Um, I want you to see just two uses of what actually is, what, is it, what kinds of childcare work are, are rabbinic men doing? And the answer is, it's a little hard to know, but if you just look at um, uvet, uh, about like, what does it mean for a child, children to be like mitupal, or for a father to be mitupal his children, like what, what is the relationship that's being described? There's two good texts from the Yerushalmi that suggest a wide range of things. So the first is this text from Demai for which we need like two seconds of background. So, so hang on, hang on to your hats for two seconds of Demai background. Um, if you want, so, in the rabbinic world of tithing, there exists a, a structure called the chavura. You can become a chaver, which means you're basically trusted to be super careful about tithing. And that gives you all kinds of special status. Um, and it gives the, the things that you produce certain kinds of status. And the question is asked, well, if a father is already part of the chaver, is a, is a chaver, then what is the status of the children? And there's some point at which the children are basically part of his household and therefore for the purposes of tithing, children are part of the game. And there's another world in which um, maybe the children are sufficiently financially independent that we need them to be kind of uh, 
their tithing happens on their own and we can't rely on the assumption that the father is a chaver in order to make assumptions about what the, the children are doing with their tithing, right? So you can see that um, in, uh, in, I'll just read one line, right? Um, there's a, there's an apparent conflict between a Brita that says the father can basically bring the children along with him into the Chavira. And then there's another, another line that says, no, actually he can't. And the Gemara res resolves the problem in the following way, right? So we can just understand that um, in some cases there's an economic connection between children and parents and in some cases not. And that explains why there's these two different judgments about whether the father's status as a chaber kind of, whether he bring the father when he becomes a chaber brings along his children. So there, it seems like the kind of work that a father does is economic, basically. It's, and it's a question of who provides for what and who is sort of buying and selling what. Um, it's, it's similar to the way we talk of in, elsewhere in Halakha about a, a child uh, being kind of at his father's table or, or not at his father's table. Um, it's a, it's a sort of provider role in the stereotypically male way that that, some, that role is sometimes described. So if you have that view, it's not the case that the, ma the man, the imagine shots that Rabbi Yehuda is thinking about is actually engaged in like changing diapers. He's not doing that. He's, maybe he is, but that's not the primary thing that that word signifies. It actually signifies a kind of economic responsibility. Um, and that that's why, you know, tithing status follows that because it's about you know who you buy from, who you sell from, and a, and a sort of economic reliability question. But in this text in Yerushalmi Kitubo, which we're going to see, just I'm just going to sort of tell you about it outside before we get into the Dayanud example, which I think is in a lot of ways the richest, the richest one. Um, if it might all, there are also ways in which this word might actually signify a more uh, intense form of care, and the place you see that is. Um, whether where that word is used to describe like actually the care between a husband and wife um, and that all and caring for the dead. Um, and so that might seem like it's a more involved, more hands-on, more sort of stereotypically counting as household labor uh, type of care. So all I want to see, want you to see from these two little snippets of Yerushalmi is just that there's a wide semantic range, there's a wide range of what, what this root like um, Ted Pei Lamed might mean. And that therefore, when, when we see Rabbi Yehuda using it, we don't 100% know what he's referring to, which on the one hand is annoying. On the other hand, I think it opens up for us the possibility that there's a pretty wide range of, of rules that that a person might take on that would affect how they how they relate to the task of being the shots in a moment of tremendous communal tension and stress and fear. Great. So now I want us, to, we've sort of seen the ways that um, the ways that uh, engaging in care for children might lead you to feel differently in an internal way, and that might change the way you pray. Um, but I want us now to see a different example, which is the one of Dayanut, of being a judge, where not only does it does that internal thing happen sort of between you and the Kaddish Baruch but actually it might change how you affect judgment for other people. So can I get someone to read in a language of their choosing uh, this little chunk from Babli Sanhedrin? I could. Wonderful, thank you. Um, and I choose English. Um, we learn in a Brita, an elder, eunuch, or someone who does not have children cannot serve on a Sanhedrin. Rabbi Yehuda adds, even a wicked person. And the reverse is true for a rebellious person because the Torah says, show him no pity or compassion and do not shield him. Great, so just one quick clarification that's super obvious in the translation. The, the same is true for a rebellious person, i.e. Uh, or the, the reverse is true for a rebellious person, i.e. all of these people who are excluded from judgment, um, from being a judge in general cases, are not excluded 
for a rebellious person or a person who causes rebellion among other people. Um, because that person maybe, I mean, the, the explanation is because the Torah says not to have compassion for those person, those people. So there's some link apparently between these traits and being a compassionate judge. So what, what do we just puzzle out for me? What's, what might be the relationship between having children and being a merciful judge? Anybody? Yeah, it does. So you know how you've watched your children grow and you've watched how they make mistakes over and over and then eventually they outgrow that and they don't do that anymore. So you learn both that people have human failings that they may struggle with for a long time and you learn that they also do become better. And so you're going to look at the person who's before the court as a person who may have made a mistake or mistakes, but has potential to become better. Great, yeah, so that's that's definitely one reason, right? That maybe you're the way, like, let's just think about who the parties are in like a sort of standard Nizikian case, right? So there might be someone who is um, a victim of some some prop, some damage, and there might be this person who caused the damage. And one thing you're suggesting is actually I might relate differently to the person who caused the damage because I actually have watched people I really care about make bad mistakes. Yeah. Um, and so then I might imagine my child in that role and imagine both that people who I really love and care for are capable of really bad mistakes, right? Which is, I think, an experience maybe we all have even without uh, having children. Um, and that there's something about the, um, the capacity for moral change that might make me feel more willing to be merciful towards that person. Cause I know they can get better even after they've made this horrible mistake. So that's one way that it might, might go. Anyone else? So one other option I think is that you might actually sympathize more with the victim and you might be merci merciful quote unquote in that way because you don't want, right? If, if think of a think of a sort of Baba Kama style like Nizikian case where someone is, you know, their goring ox is going around. You don't want your child to be gored by the, the next goring ox. So you're actually gonna be very protective of the, the victim because you can imagine that actually something, some literally horrible might happen, God forbid, to someone that you love. So I think that actually things can go both ways here or go differently depending on who the judge is, but there's an assumption in the mind of the text that, um, that being having children matters here. Yeah, so Rachel says, Zakin surprised me. I thought Zakin was the language of who should be shot, shots on a fast day. Great. Uh, I think that's, yeah, Zakain pops back up here. So as I said, there's going to be this pull between old and young. And here, yeah, Zakain is someone who, like, why shouldn't a Zakain be a judge? Anyone have any ideas? What's wrong with being super, being old? You might think that actually being old is a good thing for being a judge. They've seen a lot of life. They're very wise. All the stereotypical things. You're, you're, um, you have less ability to be held accountable if you are, uh, if you don't have so much time left alive. To right, or maybe you just have, yeah, or like, I think even before we get to the kind of morbid reading, right, it's just that they have a certain kind of status. And maybe that's that, the status of Zakim plus the status of Dayan is like too much, right? Um, there's something about like, maybe their position in the world, but even maybe just like the scrapes that a person gets into over time means that they're sort of deeply, in, too deeply enmeshed. I think that that's one reason. We'll see, we're gonna see Rashi in like two seconds and say something about that. Um, great, actually, why don't we just, why don't we just see the Rashi? So let's see the Rashi on Zakayan. Um, anyone wanna read? 
Go ahead, Desmond. Elder, one who has already forgotten the pain of raising children and will not be merciful. And the same for a eunuch. Great. So this is Rashi's explanation. Rashi's explanation is a zakin is someone who has forgotten the pain of raising children. So this is the inverse of the kind of like empty nester story I just said to you before, right? You might think that the empty nester remembers this, has it sort of built into their psyche, but isn't as caught up and immediately, yeah, the get off my lawn variety of elder, exactly, right? It's like a sort of stereotype, um, but isn't immediately caught up with like the needs of this child right the second. That's certainly part of what's going on here. But I think actually one other piece of this is that the, um, what we're, at least what Rashi is implying, and we're gonna see some, some text on the concept of Sargidul Banim in a minute, um, is that that memory becomes faint and it's actually hard to tap into all of the kinds of, the kinds of things that, um, that we were just talking about that might make you more merciful in one way or another. I want to just pause for a moment on the language of Sargidul Banim, because I, in the kind of broader philosophical world, there's been a recent movement amongst feminist scholars, both in Jewish thought and outside of Jewish thought, to highlight the importance of childcare experiences as experiences that are ethically formative, that have something meaningful to say to a broader philosophical conversation. But those experiences are very rarely presented as just explicitly painful, right? Um, they're often presented as difficult or challenging, but they're often like then kind of in the next, the next breath sort of presented as like rosy and lovely. And here Rashi is just like, no, the, the, the meaning, the kind of ethical formative character shaping payoff is pain. That's what it is. Not to say that there might not be other things, but that's the one that he kind of zeroes in on, at least in this, this little comment. So what I wanna do in the remaining time we have together um, is look a little bit at where Rashi gets this phrase, because it's not a phrase that just like drops out of the sky. Rashi didn't make it up. Um, it's actually that there's something, um, there, he gets it from elsewhere in rabbinic literature. So we're now gonna see um, an amazing Midrash from Masechet Shabbat which uses this phrase in a really surprising way um, by thinking about the avot. Um, maybe I'll just read this one because I'm going to stop a lot of times. Okay, so Shmuel Bar Nachmani said that Rabbi Yonatan said, what does it mean when it's written, surely you are our father, though Abraham regard us not, and Israel recognize us not, oh, you, our Lord, are our father, from old, your name is our redeemer. That's a, uh, from Yeshua. Okay. So Shmuel Nachmani's question is like, what does it mean that we are, you are our father, but Abraham and Israel, i.e. Abraham and, and Jacob don't, um, don't pay attention to us. Like, what does that even, how does that verse make sense? This is how the, the, the Gemara is going to answer that question in a really imaginative way. In the future, God will say to Abraham, your children have sinned against me. And Abraham will say before him, master of the universe, erase them for the sanctification of your name. So the imagined scene is God, um, God says to Abraham, your children are pretty bad. <laughs> They've messed up. And Abraham says, yeah, they're pretty bad. You should wipe them off the face of the planet. Not exactly what we we're all hoping for when we invoke Schut Avot in the Amidah, certainly not when we evoke Schut Avot on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, etc. Okay, so Abraham says, wipe them off the face of the God says, I'll say it, I'll go and I'll say the same thing to Jacob because Jacob had the pain of raising children, right? Yaakov had Sargidul Banim. Why does he think Yaakov had? Sorry, any, any options? Like what's different about Yaakov as opposed to Abraham? He had a lot more children. Oh, and that, that the text talks about it supposedly. Mm, I don't know anymore. Yeah, okay. Abraham has he a had, lot. Right, so Abraham has a lot of children. Fewer of them are in the text. It's a little complicated, but right, there's a whole, like, we can at least say this, right? That 
the narrative in Rishi spends a lot of time with the various surrogates of Yaakov's many children in a pretty extended and intense way. So it makes sense then that the, the Gemara is going to kind of pick up on this theme because it weighs heavily in, in Rishi. So, you know, even if we count the children differently, certainly like the narrative of those children as a group really matters. Any other options? Um, I would actually add that there was also the whole rivalry of favoritism that I think. So he, yeah. he actually had a, a present role in their lives for which had a, an impact. <laughs> yeah. So he has a present role, but it's all right. He has this, there, there's all this rivalry. There's these dynamics between them. Um, you know, there's the whole like Yosef getting sold business. Um, I think the other one that I think is really interesting, but is probably not what the text has in mind is Dina and Dina's rape, which is also like, I think really whatever should, should count. Um, but the idea here is there's something that Yaakov has that Abraham doesn't. Now Abraham also has like all kinds of other problems with, with conceiving and raising children, um, but their imagine is a little bit different. However, right? So God says, I'm gonna take it to Yaakov because Yaakov has the pain of raising children and he may ask for mercy on their behalf. So this is exactly the logic of, the, of this text from Sanhedrin, right? He will be merciful as a judge of the wrongdoing of the people of Israel, precisely because he's seen them, um, because he's had this pain. So how does it go? How does our theory of, of psychological, kind of the effects, psychological effects of childcare or labor or whatever pay off? Not very well. God said to him, your children have sinned against me. And Yaakov said, master of the universe, erase them for the sanctification of your name. Yaakov's no better even though he's had this, this experience, doesn't make a difference. And God said, elders have no reason and youths have no counsel. Um, and God said to Isaac, your children have sinned against me. And Isaac said, master of the universe, are they my children and not yours? Are you, why are you coming to me? This is your problem. Like, I can't fix this. And at the time that they put, we will do before we will hear, the verse was said about them, my firstborn son, and now they are my children and not yours? In other words, why do you think you can come and pawn this off on me? This is actually, you are their father kind of in the broadest sense. And so you're, the buck stops with you. Don't try to kind of siphon this off. So there's a lot going on in this midrash. I think it's like really interesting on a lot of different levels. But the main thing I want to want you to see here is the text expressing some skepticism about its own narrative. Um, this is so a modern parent-to-parent -parent comment. Yes, right? It's your child. Um, I can also like it has a sort of parent-teacher conference feel um, a little bit, um, right? Like you deal with it. No, you deal with it. Um, it's your job to punish the child. No, the child should be punished in school. Okay. Um, I think that's definitely like part of the vibe here. But what I want you to see is that the text is expressing some skepticism about the idea that childcare actually always makes you, the pain of raising children always makes you more merciful implicitly. But it also expresses that idea. And that may be where one of the places Rashi is sort of pulling from when he says um, that the Zakin is a problem because he has forgotten the pain of raising children. But what does this tell us about what the pain of raising children actually is here? We speculated a little bit about what Yaakov, what's special about Yaakov, um, but it seems just on a very simple level that it's something that a father can experience, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, this is a very male text, set of texts about who gets to claim paternity for Israel and then who are the various father figures who are kind of competing for that position. That's the way the pain of raising children is described by this text. But that's not the only game in town. So in Breshit Rabbah, Sargi Banim pops up again, but it pops up in a very obviously feminine context. So this Midrash is gonna move through all of the little words and phrases in, um, in the Pasuk and Breshit that just the verse in, in Genesis that um, describes Eve's so-called curse or what's gonna happen to her now that she's um, eaten from the tree. 
And it tries to kind of explain what each of those different phrases means. And it does so in terms of Tartuvent, right? So um, your travail, that's the pain of conception. Your, your childbearing, um, that's the pain of pregnancy. In sadness, this is the pain of, of stillbirth. You shall bear is the pain of giving birth. Children, this is the pain of raising children. So this seems like it's a feminine narrative about what the pain of raising children is. And it's a little bit different sort of a pain, right? It's not the pain of a kind of moral, moral problem raised by the children. It's actually like very physicalized in lots of ways. Um, and very much about a kind of linear process of, of development of the child that then can go wrong, right? So, you know, conception can go wrong. Uh, pregnancy can go wrong. Stillbirth is birth going wrong in a lot of ways, um, or one, one way in which birth can go wrong. And the pain of raising children is kind of the culmination of that. So that even if all the other steps go right, you get to the end and lo and behold, actually doesn't go. Even that is painful and not, not great. And then we see Rabbi Elazar said in the name of Rabbi Shimon, it is better for a person to raise a grove of olive trees in the Galilee than to raise a single child in Israel. So Rabbi Elazar says in the name of Shimon something that's actually pretty grim um, and, and maybe pushes in the opposite direction of some of the sources we saw last week to suggest that the process of raising children is really horrible and and as um, and as difficult as raising, raising olive trees, which are pretty labor-intensive intensive creatures. Um, so there's something for him, right? Why does this statement get, get sort of pegged to this midrash? I think because even a successful trajectory of childbearing um, is one that is like deeply enmeshed in in pain, um, and that therefore maybe actually like better not to bother with this 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 difficulty, right? Better not to be not to be part of it. Um, yeah, is this text suggesting that raising, raising children would be less painful in Chul in outside of Eretz Israel? I think the short answer to your question, Rachel, is yes. So one thing that I didn't pull the highlight for you, but if you go back and look, you'll see is that a lot of the very the sources that focus on experiences of scarcity and experiences of like uh, being unable to find your children or feed your children are Eretz Israeli sources. They're, they're um, sources from, from Eretz Israel as opposed to from Babylonia. And that's reflective of an economic situation that's well documented in uh, all kinds of archeological scholarly evidence that suggests that actually in Eretz Israel, they were often much poorer. Um, so part of what he's saying here essentially is like, if you are in Eretz Israel, you may be in danger of not being able to feed your own children. And therefore like better to, better to plant an olive tree that might be there in a few years. Um, your odds may be better. Um, so yeah, part of it is a sense of scarcity that's highlighted in rabbinic texts that come from Eretz Israel in a different way than we see in, in material from Bethel. So that's, that's a really, really um, important point. And I think it, it points to all kinds of, right? Even if I say this is a kind of physicalized version of the, the pain of raising children, Rabbi Elazar says in the name of Rabbi Shimon, that physicalized pain is actually not separable from the economic reality in which it arises. Those two things are deeply linked. Um, and we see that also today and you know, go and Google like maternal death rates in different places and you'll, you'll see um, that, that the economic piece is, is deeply part of it as well. So the idea here, I think, is that even, right, if we, let, let's, let's sort of uh, imagine off the page a little bit, like, what we can do with this text. Like, one thing this text opens up for us is, it, is a world where being a merciful judge is not only is not only shaped by, right, your, your sense of how to respond to a halachic reality is not only shaped by the sort of moral parenting questions that, um, arise for somebody like Yaakov who's like trying to figure out like how do I get all my children to get along and what do I do about ensuring their future those kinds of questions but it's actually about like the Tzarkidul Benim of a physicalized um form of of pain associated with with caring for very young children 
um, and, and physically bearing very young children. So that's something that I don't think, you know, Bodley Sanhedrin imagines for us, but it's something we might be able to imagine using Bodley Sanhedrin, let's say that. Um, so there's, it, it opens up a certain way of thinking about what, um, how childcare might shape a person uh, as a reader of halakhic texts and, text and as an implementer of halakhic texts. Um, I wanna just in the last five minutes um, present you with another set of options or another set of ways of thinking about this. So we've, we've up to now tended to focus on the lived, the lived reality of like actual children that you actually have to care for. Um, and that, you know, that is sort of the theme of this year and it makes, makes good sense. Um, but I wanna suggest actually that the kinds of ways that your, your psyche is shaped by caring for young children um, might have a kind of analog, won't be the same, but that might be different in a sort of anticipation of, of uh, among other things, um, longing to, to bear children that also affects how subjects are formed and therefore also ought to affect what it would be like to read a halakhic text, apply a halakhic text, be a judge, be a, you know, be a communal leader in all kinds of different ways. So in order to, to understand that, I wanna, we need, we need like two seconds of background. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, the vast majority of Masechah Shabbat is taken up with the question of what you can carry from a private domain into a public domain. And there's a lot of discussion about all the different things one could or could not carry. So there's a, a, a Mishnah which says basically, um, boys can go out carrying their little carrying their knots. And then the question is what on earth are those knots? And how, how, what is it that they're carrying? So in the course of that discussion, we get the following uh, little, little Breita, um, which talks actually about an amulet that women would carry um, in order to prevent miscarriage um, or even to like prevent a miscarriage of a potential pregnancy. So. Okay, so we can go, one may go out with a preservation stone on the Sabbath, according to Rabbi Meir. They said, even with a counterweight to the preservation stone that has the same weight, i.e., you don't need this actual stone that has this supposed protective property. You actually can just carry a rock that is the same weight. Um, and not only someone who has previously miscarried, but also in the case that she does miscarry, and also in the case that she becomes pregnant and miscarries. And Rabbi Simlai said in the name of Abai, this applies only in a case where one finds that a stone that is all, finds a stone that is already the same weight, not in a case where you cut it that way. Abai asked, and what about a counterweight to a counterweight? Let this dilemma stand unresolved. There's a lot of things going on in this little text, but I wanna highlight just a couple of them. The first is, this is a, a yeah, um, this is a means of concretely sort of experiencing caring for something that is not actually physically there yet, or may not be physically there yet, right? Because the rabbis somewhat shockingly really allow carrying a rock outside in the public domain on Shabbat for a pregnancy that may not be there but a potential pregnancy that potentially might be miscarried. So that, that's already a pretty substantial intervention in rabbinic law in the broader context. But there's something about even caring for that potential that is right in this ritual really embodied and sufficiently important that it's, it's mutar on Shabbat to do. So what I think that tells us in a lot of ways is that that experience too might shape who we could, because it's embodied and particularized and requires like legal, you know, legal sensitivity to deal with in all the ways that lots of other experiences do, might also be the kind of experience that would make us into certain kinds of judges, would make us into certain kinds of prayer leaders, would make us into certain kinds of rabbis, certain kinds of teachers, certain kinds of thinkers. So even as we are saying that, and I want you to come home thinking that, you know, I said this was the, this is the maskana to last week's habamina, that the, um, 
there's a lot of meaning and sort of productive Toro work that can come from child rearing. And also other kinds of experiences can do different but analogous forms of productive work and Toro work. So I think I will leave it there for the moment um, and I will see you next week. Next week, we're gonna be talking a little bit about the implications of having someone who is not you do your household labor, usually for pay. Um, and it will be, it will be great. Uh, looking forward to seeing you then.